Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. technology works and that uh, everything's fine. Father, we just take a minute. I take a minute and just kind of calm down and become present to this moment and this time and these people. Um, We never have to invite you to be present. You always are. There's nowhere that we are that you aren't. But there are plenty of places where we are that we aren't. Distracted, pulled in all kinds of different directions. Things to do, things left undone. Um, So I pray, O Lord, that you would help us in this moment to be where we are. Which is, as it turns out, where you are. Marriage matters to you. Um, It is 
following on the seven days of creation, one of the very first things that you set in motion and place. You intended it as a model for so much in the universe, and I pray, therefore, that you would help us to take it as seriously as you do um, uh, and to attend to it even in our own lives as we seek to walk with those who are beginning the journey. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I have uh, done weddings over, you know, years and years. Uh, I don't know how many hundreds at this stage of the game. Um, But I have noticed a trend that you probably all have as well, and that is I cannot remember the last time I did a wedding in a church. And I don't know that that necessarily is a bad thing. But, um, you know, because the settings in which we do them are gorgeous in many cases, uh, made beautiful by nature. Uh, they're, they're beautiful places. Outdoor weddings are always a pain in the neck, frankly, for anybody who cares. For those of us who are officiating. Um, for all kinds of reasons. Because you know that the biggest, often, and please don't misunderstand me in terms of any of the weddings we're engaged in here in the next few weeks. I did a wedding every week in May and in June um, three of the four Saturdays were in three of the four weeks were involved with weddings. So and it's probably as a pastor one of the least favorite things to do because huh? Yeah, that's my mission. Uh, Let me tell you why. (laughs) See, there was a punchline there, and you screwed it up for me. Thanks so much for that. Anybody who wants to harass him tomorrow morning in church would be appreciate that. Um, But you, at least often, you get the sense that the wedding is prelude to the main event, which is the party that follows. And I, I, okay, cool, have fun, enjoy. But this is what that is about, not the other way around. So part of what I love doing and why I do weddings is because I get to do pre-marriage counseling with people. And I get to spend eight to ten hours talking about why marriage matters and why God invented it and, and how it works and and some of the ways in which it doesn't work. Uh, And so that's why I'm really grateful for this conversation. Um, I'm going to walk you through some of the stuff that I do with my my students in pastoral care and counseling uh, with some uh, additional things uh, that hopefully you guys will feel free to plug into because we're dealing with veterans here, right? All of us have been married for chunks of time or something of that nature. So we'll just hope that this all works really well. Uh, This kind of just as a way to get us into this, uh, I want to um, walk through the realities that we're dealing with in our our culture. The first one is, uh, as you probably are aware, 40 to 50 percent of now notice the word here, all marriages uh, and uh, in divorce and when I say that, uh, what I'm trying to get at here uh, in, in that all business is that the 
that's first, second, third, fourth, and fifth marriages. Right? So if you hear this statistic bandied about at Christian Radio TV or whoever that says that all marriages, 50% of all marriages end in divorce, that's technically true, but it's not helpful. Uh, because the truth is, um, 30, 20, only 25 to 30% of first marriages end in divorce. You catch the difference? So, in other words, if you have been divorced, there is a greater likelihood that you'll get divorced again and an even greater likelihood that you'll get divorced again. Usually by the fourth, we've either getting tired of the cost of it or whatever, right? So, with that, of first marriages, uh, here's the other piece on this. If a marriage has the benefit of a significant program of premarriage counseling, somewhere in the vicinity of only 10 to 15% of those marriages end in divorce, right? Um, that says to me that what we do, and I especially love what Pete in, uh, is doing here with us and what Rock Harbor has done, and that is the marriage mentoring piece. Can you guess the number one correlate to marital longevity? that needs to be covered in pre-marriage counseling. It's not rocket science when you think about it, because when, when I say it, you'll, well, yeah. It's the ability to fight fair, to resolve conflict. You don't even have to resolve it particularly well, but you have to resolve it with no remainder. Does that make sense? Because if, if, we, if we don't take the garbage out and then leave the garbage out, then that just builds and, and pretty soon we're emotional hoarders. We've got an attic full of yesterday's conflict. So when we, when we think about that, um, I want to then talk about uh, what increases the likelihood of, merit, of divorce rather, for those who, who, who are, are so. Um, either set of parents were divorced. So if either set of parents were divorced, your likelihood of divorce increases by a factor of 50%, 20, twice as likely. Um, and if both parents are divorced, uh, that is not always, you know, three strikes and you're out. Because that's not how this works. But just as a likelihood statistically, uh, that, that is a, a factor. Um, the next is if uh, either of you have parents who were addicted or are addicted. So p adult children of alcoholics or drug addicts or sex addicts or workaholics or people who are addicted to spirituality or religion. In other words, anybody who learns to medicate pain rather than deal with it increases the likelihood that their children will get divorced by a factor of, again, almost two to one. Does that make sense? Because, again, we're all going to deal with stuff, right? We're all going to have problems. We're all going to... How do we deal with the pain of being us? And if we deal with it with addictive practices, uh, hiding in alcohol or drugs are obviously the most egregious, so to speak, but there are ways of dealing with pain that aren't very helpful to being a person. And spirituality 
is one of those. Work is another of those. Recreation is another of those. There are, there are people who are addicted to the latest adrenaline rush rather than deal with whatever. And that increases likelihood. Uh, either of you are below the age of 20, and we'll talk about why that is in a minute. That one, by the way, is starting to creep up. Uh, now it's almost uh, close to 21, 22, uh, particularly in Southern California, Southern Florida, and Hawaii, um, because this is the, the 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 brain chemistry issues are beginning to be working themselves out in social awareness. So when does a person reach social maturity with a capacity for independent living? is really what we're talking about. How, when have they moved from the, the pseudo-self, the false self, the self that got generated in junior high school, to the solid self, which is a real person that knows, who, uh, knows what they think, knows who they are, uh, and is not so readily influenced by peer pressure. If I'm starting to date somebody at 17 or 18, there's a very high likelihood that I will adjust my solid self to fit what I believe they want from me, right? And then at 20 or 21, discover, wait a minute, that's, I, I don't like that band. I don't like this. And, and it's like, well, you, you're used to, you know? So are there marriages that begin satisfactorily in junior high school? Yes. Not marriages, but relationships, right? But inevitably, they will have done the thing that most of us do, that is have serial relationships from junior high, high school, college, finally settling on our spouse down, down the road a, a, a while, but they will have done it with the same person rather than what most of us do, which is dump that person and try it out on somebody else, if that, if that makes sense. Does that... There's, yeah, right, right, right. But especially so if, if, because usually, especially if it's a girl who's getting married below the age of 20, it's primarily about escape. It's, it's primarily the way I'm going to leave home rather than having left home, becoming a whole person in my own, and then engaging as an adult woman and with an adult man. I, I just need to get out of this, you know. Um, next is, uh, sorry, I'm just, this new technology is just fascinating to me and I still can't figure out how it works. Yeah, it's working. Good. Um, either of you or either of the couple have been in, sexually act, in a sexually active relationship with or before the fiance. In other words, the more sexually engagement and sexual engagement there is prior to marriage, uh, the greater the likelihood of divorce after marriage. Uh, and the reason we'll talk about that, not this time, but next time, is that married sexuality is very, very different from pre-married sexuality. Um, this, by the way, also includes uh, uh, excessive pornogra pornography use. Uh, and by that I mean bordering on addictive, not occasional, uh, which we can talk about the distinctions there if you want. And this is true whether that relationship has been uh, with somebody else and now you're married to this person or with this person to whom uh, we, are, we are now married. And again, because the glue that sexuality 
is intended to provide to a healthy, holistic relationship is misused in premarital sexual relationships to the point that it doesn't work very well once the relationship moves to, to marriage. Um, so God's caveat saying, trust me on this one, wait until you've built covenant, wait until you've built intimacy, uh, is borne out in, in statistics uh, relative to divorce. Um, next one is you live with your fiancé before marriage. Typically, these two things go together uh, in our culture. People rarely live with their boyfriend, girlfriend without sleeping together. So that's where this one gets a little fuzzy. However, um, if it, there is still some suggestion that living together without benefit of marriage uh, and benefit of covenant connection... Uh, disables capacity for that covenant connection once you do get married. Um, the reason, again, is that when we're living together without benefit of marriage, we tend to play nice. We tend to get al- we wor- work hard to get along, and then we're married. And then it's like, I'm really tired and not telling you what I think about something. Or d- d- Does that make sense? So all of these things are ways of hiding. And then the final one, is you haven't learned healthy conflict while dating. Um, this is a, an interesting one for the people group that I mostly work with, 18 to 22, because most of the dating relationships bet- for kids between the ages of 18 to 22 are focused on play. We go to Disneyland, we go to the beach, we go to amusement park, we go to the fair, we're going to do all kinds of things. Uh, So somewhere in the vicinity of 90 to 95% of the time that a couple has spent together prior to their engagement is in playful activities, recreational activities, socially oriented activities. Only 10% of marriage is those things. So if you've learned how to relate to one another as playmates, but not how to work together not learned how to relate to one another as workmates. So when we get engaged and start to do finally the first real work project the two of us have done together, i.e. plan and execute the social event called the wedding, all kinds of tension and conflict erupt in the relationship that wasn't there while dating because we weren't working together. We were just playing together. So I want... Generally speaking, I'd like dating couples to do work together, go on a missions trip, travel around the world with somebody to a village in some place for 10 days. See how they handle those kinds of work stresses and environments. You'll learn more about the person in those 10 days than you will have in the 18 months of your dating relationship. Right? Um, Any questions or comments on any of this? Okay, so... Uh, when we talk about this, uh, focused pre-marriage counseling uh, helps in three primary ways. First of all, it provides a theological foundation and ongoing point of reference. So the first thing that I do with couples when we sit down and talk in pre-marriage counseling is just how did you meet? Why do you want to get married? Why do you want to get married to him or her? Uh, what are your hopes for your marriage? When you think about 50 years together, what makes you cringe? That's a really important question for me 
Because if they can't answer that question, they don't know the other person very well. In other words, where do you think this is where the wheel's likely to come off? What about this person don't you like? What have you realized? Oh, this is going to be a challenge. And I'll talk about why I do that earlier on. But does that make sense? So I, I want them to say, I love this person. I don't always like him or her. Right? And it's fascinating to me because a lot of couples have never been able to verbalize until they're sitting in my office. I really don't like it when you. I don't know how this is, this is going to be an issue for me. You know how, how we tease and joke and laugh about always being late to things? Yeah, that really ticks me off. Oh, well, good. Let's talk about it. Why? Because I want them to fight and have the majority of their fights on those what I call collision of normal issues before they get married. I'd prefer to have them before they get engaged. Because once you get engaged, there's a social contract. And there's also money on the line. Right? I bought a ring or we've started to negotiate with vendors or, or whatever, so I can't risk having a conversation that may result in this party not coming off. So I'd rather have people do that while they're dating. Um, and so if I have a couple that comes to me for pre, pre-engagement counseling and they say to me in one form or another, which unfortunately they do until the rumor gets around that I don't like it, they say, we never fight. We just get along so well. My job, then, is to make them fight. Frankly, that's my recommendation, that the engagement should last about as long as it takes to plan a wedding. Uh, but that's presuming you've done the hard work in the dating relationship, you've had the fights, you've learned to work together, you've discovered Uncle Harry, you know, or whatever the representative in your family system of weird is, and, oh, uh, right? You've worked through some of that stuff. And um, uh, if, if you don't do that till you're engaged... Then the social then then let's make it as long <laughs> as we can and and really give them permission up until you say I do, you don't have to. It's kind of a joke almost all the time when I'm walking with the groom up to the you know altar. My I'll, I'll just somewhere in there I'm going to turn and say to him it's not too late because it isn't. But in about 30 minutes it'll be too late. And I've, I've, you know, I've not had anybody take me up on a day of. I've had people take me up on it night before. And I'd rather that than 24 hours later, what have I done? Right? Now, that particular, one of those particular couples, they ended up getting married, but they realized they hadn't had, there were some lingering issues that, they really wanted to make sure they talked about with enough thoroughness. In other words, they took their wedding, but more than that, their marriage, seriously. Does that make sense? 
Uh, so, it provides a theological foundation, an ongoing point of reference. It also enables us to do some reality testing, which is what I've been trying to talk with you about, right? What, what, how, do, how do you get along? How do you fight? What does communication look like? Uh, and particularly along the lines of idealism, what do you expect your marriage and expectations? What, what are your dreams? You know, when, when in our culture, I'm surprised at how many especially uh, of our young women, have been subscribing to Bride magazine since they were like four. So they've got this wedding map of what it's supposed to be like, and nobody realizes the wedding is about 20, 25 minutes, and then the next 70 years, can we talk about what that is? And idealism gets you to the altar, but that's pretty much it. And then we've already talked a little bit about expectations, which we'll come back to in, in a few minutes. And then, um, then yeah. That's a great question. And that's one of the reasons why, for me, I like the one-with-one conversation rather than doing pre-marriage counseling as a seminar, which is primarily about communication of content uh, and without monitoring the hard conversations. I know, like, Roger uh, works really, really hard to get couples who go through his pre-marriage stuff to, to talk about these things. But he says even then, there are people that just jump through the hoops, right? Because, well, we've got to do this. And often, I will find there's one of the two that really just wants to get, get it done so we can get on. Uh, so for me, even that first conversation is really more about pastoral care, getting to know them, walk with them, who are they, where's the energy coming from towards this, um, and, and asking hard questions that maybe they haven't had a chance to think about that kind of tips them off, off their center a little bit. So it's a discomforting conversation uh, that then enables me to see when the claws come out uh, because that's really important. Does that make sense? And, and so it really, for me, it's, it's really a discerning kind of a conversation uh, what what are we not saying what 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 do we really need to push into here uh, what what are we engaged in um, yeah uh, and and also when you see what we do with topics I think you'll see some of the places that that uh, can can start to push in because I really want them to personalize when I talk about communication often the first introduction is you know, what kind of, what conversation do you, have you regularly tried to have with each other that keeps going off the rails? That you, every time you bring up this topic or every time you're dealing with this situation, it just seems to go, you just, I can't make him, I can't get through to her on this. What is that? And that often by itself is enough of a question that says, oh, well, let's jump into that. Why is that so awkward or difficult or painful or whatever for you to 
to deal with. Okay, uh, and then the, the next one is to develop a foundation and strategy for healthy conflict resolution. So I want to be able to say, uh, uh, what, are, what is the theology of conflict? Because conflict is a very good thing. Uh, it's one of the primary ways God designed uh, us in which intimacy gets built. Intimacy here I'm defining as to know and be known, Right? And, and conflict is a way of saying, here's somebody who doesn't see the world the same way I do, who doesn't think about things the way I do, who doesn't process or approach anything the same way that I do. What an adventure. What a gift. I can learn from them. But if I don't have healthy conflict resolution capacity, I'm just going to view them as, ooh, how, how can anybody walk vertically and think the way you do? You know, um, so that's 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 an, uh, an issue there. Ooh, how did I do that? Okay, okay. So here is when divorce occurs. Uh, in general, statistically, the first blip in the divorce statistics is somewhere in the first six months. Uh, this one goes six months to two years ish, and these are all very very kind of general. But just to give you an idea, there's three primary danger places. First one is at that six-month period. The largest is at five to seven years. And then the second largest is at 20 to 25 years. And we'll talk about why that is. So pre-marriage counseling focuses primarily on this one uh, as just an out-of-the-door, out-of-the-gate, here are some things you've got to be aware of, and then gives tools for this one. Because this one is almost always a follow-on of failure to deal with this one. Not always, but often a follow-on. Because the solution often of this one is let's have kids. So then what do we do? Well, then our energy is focused on having kids and raising kids and so on and so forth. We forget how to be married, which we didn't do really well here. So what happens here? Kids leave home, and I wake up in the morning after the wedding and look at you, and I, I don't really like you very much, and I don't think I, I want to, you know. So that's there. Um, next one. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I, what I try to do is tell people that I hope this is an ongoing conversation, that if you feel comfortable to check back in, uh, I'm happy to meet with you as often as you want going on. Uh, that's a great, great thing. Yeah. I haven't quite gotten the, <laughs> Yeah. 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 Um, I, uh, I haven't gotten to the place where I've called. Well, a couple of them I have. Uh, but I've got uh, dozens that we get back in touch with. Uh, I had a call with somebody the other day because they're, uh, and we do Skype, and I love Skype. It's just so cool. It lets me talk to people all over the world. And, oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, of course, this is the first time in my life uh, this last four or five years where I haven't had an ongoing relationship with the family as their pastor. Because uh, remember, I was at Foothill for 27 years. 
So I, I married them. I dedicated their kids. I often did their parents' funerals. So we were just embedded in the life of people, and you just kind of know what's going on. So, so that, that this has been an anomaly for me uh, with the with the university environment, where where really it's kind of a the the officiant is just kind of a chaplainy role, which is what I don't like very much. I love marrying people as a pastor. I don't like marrying them as a chaplain. Yeah. Okay. So next, uh, so we're, we're going to talk about what these are. Six-month uh, blip. The first one is idealistic distortion. So why do marriages fall apart in the first six months or so? Uh, idealistic distortion. So some misunderstanding of what marriage is going to be like, what relationship is going to be like, and then you get married and discover, oh, she doesn't look that good all the time. Or he is a slob. Right? And if all you ever see is, this is why I think I want people to work out the roommate issues with other people. So that if the first person you live with is your husband or wife, you're going to have problems that are not about being husband and wife. They're just about different collisions of, of normals. You'd be surprised how many definitions of clean there are. And when you're dealing with a roommate in college that I don't care if I see again another five years. Cool. But, oh, wait, she's not going home. And, and stuff clogs the sink. How does this happen? Uh, and, and if you're not aware that that's normal... Idealistic distortion, the fairy, you know, princess and prince charming stuff that is unfortunately part of the marriage culture in America uh, gets in the way of that. Uh, then unrealistic expectations. Uh, because you love me, you will always understand me. For example, that's an unrealistic expectation. Uh, uh, that love does not is not a magic decoder ring. Yeah, it, it, right. Or my expectation is that uh, we'll have sexual relationships three or four times a week. And I'm married to somebody who has an expectation of whenever necessary. Those are two very different thoughts about sexuality and they will inevitably conflict so idealistic uh, unrealistic expectations uh, this is where a lot of money problems come from that in the first six months we have to have what it took our parents 35 years to have and so we're going to go into debt to get that so we can be married because being married means having matching couches and you know a nice bedroom suite and all that kind of stuff you can actually be married without any of that stuff, but there are a lot of folks who don't believe that. So uh, idealistic, unrealistic expectations. And then the, probably one of the main ones in the six-month period is the failure to differentiate. That is, one or the other of the parties has not left home. Their primary point of reference for identity 
is backwards, not forwards. Is still mom and dad, uh, and and still their or still their peer group. So failure to differentiate, uh, which is what I my kind of buzz phrase for leaving home. I use that language. Uh, so when I do pre pre engagement counseling, an awful lot of energy is spent on how are you doing at leaving home. In fact, I intended to bring this, so I'll, and I didn't, uh, but I've got a five-page series of questions called Before You Say Yes, which I'll get to you in, uh, if it's going to be helpful to you. Any questions on the six-month thing? Are, is this pace working? Are everybody, we're doing okay? Good. I'm thinking we'll take a break halfway through. Yeah, perfect. And anybody wants to get up and wander around, get coffee or whatever, please feel free to... Do that too. Yep. Yep. That's a great question. Um, I have seen a shift, and it's not a, a good one. The millennials with just the group that I'm primarily working with now, are the most anxious generation in history. And their primary point of reference is fa either family of origin or peer group. So the whole failure to launch phenomenon, parents are so anxious about their kids that they don't let them crash and burn at five. So they're terrified to crash and burn at 20. They haven't learned that, no, you can crash and burn and still get up. You're going to be scraped and there's going to be some scars and not everybody's going to like you and you don't get a trophy for just being you. You know, that's, that's news to a lot of these kids. And so when they move into a peer group of people like them, that then becomes, that's the that's the false self, right? Because I'm either going to look to my family of origin or my peer group, and that's why junior high is so painfully miserable. Because I'm trying to figure out who the heck I am, and we are self-reflected. We are socially defined by reflection. So I'm looking around for somebody. What music do you like? Remember we talked about this in the soul care thing. What, music, what band do you like? What activities do you like? And it's like, well, what do you, what do you like? Because once I know what you like, I know what I like. And then 10 years later, I discover mm, not so much and you've already moved on and so on. So I'm seeing a slight downtick in differentiation, which is corresponding then to a much later age of marriage that's moving into the late 20s. The other piece that's contributing to this is the sexual revolution of the 60s. Uh, that enables men particularly to have what they get married for, be very crass, but to have what they get married for without the price of getting married. So why should I make a commitment to lifetime faithfulness if what I'm really after, and this is, a, this is lowest common denominator, but, and nobody thinks this way, but this is how they think. So that's the other thing that contributes to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, good. Thank you. So uh, at the five to seven years uh, piece, the, the, the 
number one contributor here is boredom. So married sexuality gets boring after about six months because it is not built on the same stuff that carried sexuality in the, in the pre-marriage thing. Uh, then we start to take one another for granted. We don't do the hard work of intimacy building over time. We get locked and loaded with careers, with paying the bills, with, with, the, with the stuff of being married. And for, often for one of the partners, that's kind of what they signed up for. The healthier the marriage they came from, the greater the likelihood they'll say, well, yeah, this is kind of what it is. We get to work together and solve problems and struggle. And the other one is saying, well, that's not what I signed up for. I want romance and adventure. And yeah, Well, that, okay. But right now we've got to pay the water bill, uh, you, you, you know. Uh, so that contributes to it. And uh, often um, then there's the failure to do the hard work of love by choice. We're counting on our emotion to carry us. And uh, again, the culture and including the Christian culture, uh, in my view, often emphasizes love primarily as feeling. And uh, that's not going to get you very far. Uh, in, in the long term. So you've heard the language, the honeymoon's over. That's the outcome of that. So honeymoon's over is the six-month period. But failure now to do the hard work, now that the honeymoon's over, is what contributes to the five- to seven-year blip. Okay? Uh, and then uh, children have replaced spouse. So a lot of women get married so they can be moms. That's their goal in life. That's what they want to do and to be. And, and marriage is the price I have to pay to be a mom, uh, which creates enormous stress on a marriage because uh, maybe he got married for companionship or he got married for, for, for uh, other kinds of uh, you know, uh, relational connectedness or whatever, Right. Um, and so when children now become the center of her life, and it's not just her, but primarily, unfortunately, her, then he becomes a planet in orbit around the central part of the marriage. Kids are never intended to be the center of the marriage. If they're, if they're at periphery, they're fine. Kids can't handle the weight of holding the marriage together. If mom and dad are solid, kids will be fine. Do, do, do you know? And, and so that, that's when children have replaced spouse. It's not uncommon then for this to have an emotional or sexual component as the person who feels replaced finds someone at work uh, who can, gets him. So, so the seven-year itch, you've heard that uh, phrase uh, speaking of the sexual component of, of uh, this seven-year blip, is really rarely first about sexuality. It's almost always about uh, emotional attachment. Uh, emotional affairs pave the way for sexual affairs. And uh, they are very slow drift, very, you know, uh, an inappropriate conversation, uh, but when you don't feel understood at home or where there's a disconnection, 
with family, uh, with your family at home where you feel like you're nothing but a breadwinner. Your job is to pay for the rest of us to then sooner or later you're likely to find somebody who's your soulmate. And I can't tell you how many conversations over the last 30 years I've had with somebody seven or eight, nine, ten years in their marriage. I finally found my soulmate. And it's not the person I'm married to. Well, that's too bad. Because you don't marry your soulmate. You become soulmates with the person you marry. But the problem is that takes two. Right? And if one of you is as part of that and the other not, then we've got to got a problem. Uh, It depends on what they've done in the waiting period. Because a lot of couples really don't do the hard work laying the foundation for a marriage that will support the weight of children. Children don't make a weak marriage stronger. They make a weak marriage weaker. They'll break it, inevitably. Um, so what are we doing in the two, three, four, five years before we have kids? Are we building a foundation that we can work together? Because now for the next 20 years, the energy of the, of the team is going to be redirected to the, to the getting rid of these foreign bodies that we have brought into our home. Because, again, the purpose of having children is to get rid of them. Right? So, so does that make sense? I mean, really, because... Huh? That's that, <laughs> Hello. <laughs> they do. That's, that's true. I, so the goal... But you, you know what I mean. You want them... I, <laughs> I, I, I want my 18, 19, 20-year-old to have the skills, gifts, and abilities and self-awareness to manage without me, ideally. Um, and and that, 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 that's an all-hands-on-deck kind of an enterprise, uh, the partnership between mom and dad. Mom's primary in the first five years, then it's a shared thing, then dad really kicks in between the ages of about 10 and 15, he's the, he's the, the kind of the, the launch pad for adulthood uh, in terms of sexual identity for, for sons and daughters, in terms of their competence as adults, and so on and so forth. So if the, if the foundational frame when we have kids isn't strong enough to support that over time, then, then that's going to work itself out in, in some... Some difficulties. If they've done that, then kids can really help compress and solidify the intimacy of a relationship as long as, and this is the other piece, the kid, they know and the kids know that the kids are not the most important thing in the marriage. So mom and dad are going away in retreats. They're taking a weekend away. Uh, they lock their bedroom door. They, they are content to let the kids go off on their own. And the kids, as long as they have a magnetic pull and orbit, they'll be fine. But as soon as they become the center of the universe, the pressure on kids... Because remember, up until a kid's about 13, 14, he or she believes they are the center of the universe. And they, they 
really think that everything that happens in their environment is about them. So if mom and dad get a divorce, I'm to blame. If mom and dad fight, it's my fault somehow. Well, we need to then teach them how to fight. You'd be surprised how many couples I have. Maybe you wouldn't, but when we talk about conflict resolution, how did your mom and dad resolve conflict? Oh, they never fought, or they went into the bedroom. We have no idea how they resolve conflict. Or dad just blah, 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 and walked out of the door and slammed it, and then mom did whatever she wanted. Okay. Well, where do you plan to learn healthy conflict resolution? Do, do, do you know? So, does that make sense? All right. Uh, next one is uh, the 20 to 25 years uh, children uh, leave home. They were the glue that held it together. Uh, because there is nothing built, you don't have to uh, um, write this down unless it's helpful to you, but nothing built into the core couple. So the marriage collapses in and itself with unfamiliarity. Often in this as well, delayed crisis has occurred. So a kid was born with Downs or has had a catastrophic accident, or somebody got hurt on the job uh, and has been either severely or moderately disabled, that places an enormous pressure. Those are somewhat anomalous. Uh, but if the, if the foundation isn't solid, any of those stressors can create um, a, a, a catastrophic break. In, in, the, in the marriage at 20 to 25 years. Uh, and, but the primary one is there's, n- not, there's no center. The whole family has been devoted to these children. And, and so mom has become best friends with her daughter. And there's no need for a best friend who's not her daughter, which, by the way, also cripples her daughter in her marriage because her best friend's not supposed to be her mom. You know, she's mom's supposed to be mom, which is not the same thing. Not even sister, mom. Right? Um, so, the point of dating and courtship, then, um, and this is just something I added in, and I don't even know if I got spaces in there, but um, really is uh, to develop in the first six to nine months foundational intimacies. Uh, socially and intellectually to support next steps. Remember, if you were in the soul care conversation, I suggested that there are five components to the soul. Uh, Social, intellectual, emotional, physical, and spiritual. Physical and spiritual are the primary ones that come from being dust of the earth and the breath of God. Physical, spiritual. Flowing from there is emotional, Social and intellectual. When we, ent- when we engage in new friendship, dating relationship or whatever, we do it primarily on the social and intellectual levels. So we, we engage in common activities. We build a, a, a friendship rooted in those things or an intellectual. We talk about things. We share ideas. We create space for the other. So that when, if we're in an intentional relationship, about six to nine months in, I have really discovered uh, there are a couple of speed bumps, but no really red flags in moving forward intentionally in this dating relationship. There are a couple of things that I just wonder, uh, I don't know how somebody can think that way, or why doesn't she like skeet shooting? I, I don't know. How can anybody not 
love rock and roll. I, I don't know. I don't know. Country, western. Oh, no. You know, but uh, okay, I can live with that, you know. Um, but then, because yeah, really the first question in the first six months is, can I live with this person? So it's really not looking for a reason to break up, so to speak, in the dating relationship. And I've got a whole thing on dating that I do, but I didn't do that with you guys. But the first, really I'm looking at, can I live with this person? If he or she doesn't change for the next 50 years, is there anything I cannot live with? So, do I like how my gender is treated in his or her family of origin? That's part of the social intimacy. I want to meet her family or his family. I want to see how they talk to one another and how they treat one another. What is the role of men or women in their family? And Because that's going to be the default, even if he doesn't or she doesn't want it to be, that will likely be the trajectory that we're going to have to address. And, and I want to be aware of that. Do you, do you see what I'm after? So, can I live with this person? And then the next three, six to nine months really focuses on transition uh, to build towards adequate emotional intimacy to support appropriate spiritual and physical intimacies. So, as a couple start to date, um, the more difficulty they have had in dating relationships before the greater the necessity of prohibiting access to spiritual and physical intimacies now. Because for couples today, going slow physically means we, we don't make out until the third date. That's not slow if you want to build an adequate foundation in friendship to sustain a lifetime of relationship. And, you know, when I tell my undergrad students that, their jaw drop moment, you know, it's like, what? Yeah, you you make the call. Uh, And then the final thing is, can I live with this person? So the first set of concerns in the six to nine months is, is there something in that person that I can't live with? But then, am I the kind of person who can live with this person? Do I have enough sense of myself? Am I solid enough in who I am in Christ? Am I aware enough? So you can guess then what we're going to be working on when we do pre-engagement stuff. And then if they haven't done it in in pre-engagement, we'll do it in the early stages of of that. So engagement counseling. Questions, comments? Everybody doing okay? Uh, A couple more minutes and then we'll, we'll, we'll shift. Is adequate differentiation. So I'm going to press in pretty hard on how each of you are doing at leaving home, socially, intellectually, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Uh, What is is your belief system primarily shaped by your parents' faith, or how has it become yours? Is your political alliance shaped by your family system or by your peer group, or has it become yours? Talk to me about who, what you and your friends disagree about. Or what you and your husband or wife-to-be disagree about, your boyfriend, girlfriend. What do you disagree about? And how do you negotiate those? 
So those kinds of differentiations, because there's three stages of differentiation. Remember, we talked about this in soul care. One is uh, where you leave home, so it's that first stage of differentiation. Second is where you individuate. That is, you become a whole person without reference to your families of origin and influencing peer groups, which is really the question that, that uh, John, you were asking here a couple of minutes ago. That is huge because often the millennials will simply trade one family for another family and that family now becomes their family of origin, so to speak. So they don't know what they think. They know what their posse thinks, what their tribe thinks, uh, what their gang thinks. And that identity is way more important than their individual thought on any given thing. The problem is you don't marry a posse. You just marry a person. And, and if they're always looking over their shoulder to see what daddy did with his money, then we can't have an honest conversation about what we're going to do with our money. Do you see? And, and on and on the list goes. So adequate differentiation, then adequate progress towards solid self. So they have moved away from the pseudo-self, the false self that is generated uh, along about junior high or middle school to deal with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune growing up as a 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 or 14 year old in Western culture. Other cultures manage this stuff very, very differently than do ours. Um, but anyway, this is where we, we live, so this is what we talk about. And the false self is the self that is the conformed self. It's the self that I put on to fit in, right? And so the question is, have I made progress towards differentiation from that can group? You, um, can you tell us what that looks like? What, yeah. What would, uh, if you're meeting with a couple, what would it look like? And you, in your head, you're going, okay, this is a, a false self, true, uh, solid self issue. Yeah, so... Um, th these two tend to go together, uh, so it's going to be, um, uh, I'll try and root around there, with, poke around with a sharp stick and find something that makes one or the other of them wince, and then I'll pounce on that. I'll ask them a series of questions about politics, about spirituality, about uh, religion. I'll ask them about, um, tell me how you get along with your future mother-in-law. You know, or just anything that starts them. Uh, and it's it, so I, what I'm looking for is I have become a whole person. Uh, and and I, I, I'm still in progress. I still have some because your brain doesn't even get finalized until about 24, 25. Right. The prefrontal lobe isn't solid until then. So that's still, and that's judgment, that's being able to make sound judgments uh, 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 and decisions about things. So then, it, then it's going to be about um, uh, uh, the, how, how much of the self is conformed to the expectations of the group. So um, why do you like the music you like? Why do you like the books you like? Why do you participate and, and talk to me about something that you do or you think or you like that perhaps some of your friends can't quite figure out. You'd be surprised how many people have not one single thing that 
they and their friends disagree about? Well, that tells me that the reason they think what they think about what they think is because they've made a decision to think what everybody else thinks about it. You know? And that's that third level of dif- or second level of differentiation, right? That individuation. I want to be so these two tend to track together. And then the next one on this is health and the five intimacies, um, which is how are we doing at building the friendship socially, intellectually, emotionally, socially, spiritually, and physically? Is there an appropriate level of spiritual intimacy? for the friendship that you have sustained. In Christian circles, uh, I find a lot of pressure towards spiritual intimacy that is not supportable. So let's pray together. Let's read the Bible together. Let's really push into God together in the early stages of our dating relationship. And maybe it's because of my, you know, my sphere of reference as a Christian university. Uh, but that spiritual manipulation is huge in dating relationships on the Vanguard campus. So I I push hard on this. I don't want you praying together. I don't want you reading your Bible together. I don't want you doing stuff like this together, except very, very occasionally, and only after you have built six to nine months of friendship that can sustain spiritual differences. And they're again looking at me like, what? Isn't that how you grow close to one another? It can be but it can also be how one or the other of you manipulates the relationship. Uh, God told me. Well, you're more spiritual than I am. So I guess this must be the way it is. You know? You know? Uh, so I just want to take that off the table. And again, these are arbitrary, so we'll talk about this individually. Reiterate again the five minutes. Yeah. So uh, foundational... Entry level, engaging at the friendship level are social and intellectual. Then building on that is is emotional. Can I trust you with my heart, with my feelings, with my emotions? What does anger look like? What does sadness look like? Etc. Then spiritual and physical. So there are appropriate levels of physical intimacy that are non-sexual that a relationship can engage in without damage. Unfortunately, as soon as I use the language even of intimacy, couples immediately start to move towards sexual intimacy, not realizing that if sexual intimacy becomes the center of the target, it soon diminishes in its capacity to connect a couple. So I want to build appropriate patterns of physical intimacy that are non-sexual, in a dating relationship so that they can sustain the weight of sexual intimacy when they layer it in on top of the other five. Okay? Uh, so I've got, um, uh, like I said, uh, uh, um, uh, and maybe I can get that to Pete and we can put it someplace and if you guys are interested in that, I meant to bring it and I, I uh, forgot to copy it. Okay? Then the next thing. Let's take a break. Yeah. And we'll come back. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.
Space for your presence to dwell and to move. 